the rest of you to please turn in your Bibles to Exodus 33. Exodus 33, verse Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, Bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways, that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. And he said, my presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And he said to him, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, This very thing that you have spoken I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses said, Please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, he said, You cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there's a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. The Lord said to Moses, cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. Be ready by the morning and come up in the mountain to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite that mountain. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first. And he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him and took in his hand two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, 
keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. Thus far, our Old Testament reading. Please turn now in... The New Testament to Paul's letter to the Ephesians, chapter 4. Beginning with verse 25. Therefore, having put away all falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal. But rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Let's pray together. Lord, we hear these words and we acknowledge that they are your words to us through the Apostle. We ask that you might drive them home deep in our hearts today. That you would help us to behold Christ, to hear him speaking to us. That we might be changed and made more like him. Please, Lord, let the words of my mouth and the thoughts of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. With our son, Mark, getting married in January, Nancy and I have become increasingly preoccupied with a variety of wedding kind of issues and details, Um, especially being so far away from the location of where the wedding will take place. It requires a little extra effort and uh, preparation in advance. And, And in 
thinking about weddings, one thing that suddenly struck me just this week is that I couldn't remember the last time that I saw a wedding announcement in the newspaper. Now, some of that may be because the newspaper keeps raising its rates as fewer and fewer people read the newspaper. Um, Other people perhaps are using other forms of social media to make their announcements. But then sometimes, it it did occur to me, sometimes people wait to make their announcement, put it in the paper on their first anniversary. I don't know if you've seen that. You see this announcement and then the date is a year ago. And and it did occur to me that a year ago we were in the thick of COVID and people just weren't having weddings and all the pictures and everything. And, and, And maybe that's part of it too. But in thinking about those announcements that you just don't read anymore because at least I haven't seen them in the newspaper, there's one thing that has always kind of struck me, uh, partly because I didn't always understand it or couldn't relate to it, but there's almost always a very detailed description of the bride's gown, of how all the details, how long it is, what color it is, what kind of fabric was used, whether there's lace or beading, or uh, and often that it will even mention the name of the designer of the gowns. I guess those who are familiar with that particular designer will have a better understanding in their minds of what it probably looks like. And I guess they do that because when you look at the black and white picture, some of those features aren't always immediately obvious, and they want you to know just how beautiful the bride was on her wedding day. Now, in the letter to the Ephesians that is before us this morning, the apostle in the first three chapters had been focused on setting forth a vision of what is the church in, in all of its glory as God has designed it and, and redeemed it? And then coming to chapter 4, he's now beginning to urge the church to be the church, to look like the church, to function as the church, to apply all that rich theology of the truth of who we are. And now let's show that's who we really are. Now, where we are in the text, Paul has not yet spoken of the church as the bride of Christ. That's still coming in the middle of chapter 5. But in the preceding three verses to our text, he has just called on the church to put off the old self or the old man and to put on the new man. Or the new self. He wants the church as the church, as it were, to undergo a wardrobe change. It's not looking very churchy. It's not looking very beautiful. 
And having said that, in our text now, what he's doing is he's beginning to describe what that means to put on the new man. What is this new man that we're putting on? Paul in Galatians 3.27 says that we're to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Here in verse uh, 24, preceding our text, we're told to put on the new self created after the likeness of God. What does this look like? And so he's beginning to spell it out for us here. What should we be expecting to see? And what should the people around us be seeing as they look upon us as the church? How are we to be what we really are? We know that's what the text is doing here, first of all, because it begins in verse 25 with the therefore, referring immediately back to this putting off, being renewed, and putting on of a new man in Christ. But also, it he then immediately say, therefore, having put away falsehood, and that's the same word he used in verse 22 for putting off, the old man. So he's making the connection to the putting off, the putting on, and now here he's going to begin to flesh out the details. What should we look like? What are the details of the beauty that should be seen and reflected in our fellowship? Well, the first one is truth versus falsehood. Verse 25, therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. The truth is vital to the church. We profess to be purveyors of the truth of God. And the presence of lies not only damages our reputation, but it creates division. Because why do we lie? We lie because we think telling the truth is going to put us at a disadvantage in some way with respect to other people. And and so we tell the lie because we think it's to our own advantage to do so, so that we will appear better. Well, Paul here is quoting from Zechariah chapter 8, verse 16. And in Zechariah 8, God is speaking to the people after having been exiled and speaking of the restoration that God would bring about. And in chapter 8, verse 16, I'll start with 15 and 16. So again have I purposed in these days to bring good to Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. Fear not, these are the things that you shall do. Speak the truth to one another. In your gates uh, render judgments that are true and make for peace. Now, the context, as I said, was they had been in exile And in chapter, in verse 3 of Zechariah 8, 
It says, thus says the Lord, I have returned to Zion and will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem and Jerusalem shall be called the faithful city and the mountain of the Lord of hosts, the holy mountain. Now, the interesting thing in Hebrew is that the word for faithful and the word for true or truth is the same word. And so one could translate verse 3, Jerusalem shall be called the city of truth. That's what God is doing. He's making his people a place of truth, of transparency, of openness. We do not need to fear. All of our sins have been forgiven in Jesus Christ. uh, The fact that... We're sinners one to another should not make us feel embarrassment. We should be embarrassed in the sense of having sinned against the Lord, but, but we're all sinners. The fact that somebody might have sinned shouldn't astonish anyone. So he says, put on truth. That's what should be seen. That's one of the beautiful parts of the dress that we are to put on and, and to be adorned with. What's also interesting is that the word falsehood in verse 25 of Ephesians 4, having put away falsehood, could also be translated having put away the lie. Having put away the lie. Rather than abstract, more concrete, it does have a definite article. And rather than being abstractly falsehood, it could refer to the lie, which may be then an allusion to the false religion that began when Satan came and gave the first lie to Eve, and they believed that lie. And then later, Paul in Romans 1 condemned the people who exchanged the truth for a lie and worship the creature rather than the creator. In Romans one twenty-five, and so the idea of this lie of false religion is going to divide us because if we're divided on what ought to be uniting us, which is our trust in Christ and our belief in the truth about who Christ is, it's simply going to divide us. Falsehood, believing the lie, false religion, it creates division. And previously, in chapter 2, Paul had said that in Christ, God had made the two people of Jews and Gentiles, one new man. And now he's telling us to put on the new man. And the first feature that ought to be seen is truth, speaking truth to one another. Now, we might not be people that regularly going around telling bold falsehoods, but we can kind of shade and tell those little white lies to cover up because we're embarrassed. We don't want to be seen to be less than perfect. And yet those things can worm their way in and split apart a congregation. And so truth needs to be 
part of the description that people would want to describe about us if they were looking at us as a church? How would they describe what we're wearing? Are we wearing the image of God? Well, if we're to put on a new man created after the image of God, do they see truth? God is the truth. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Is that what they see? Truth is a necessary part of our wardrobe as a church with which we must be clothed. Clothed. The second thing they should see is controlled anger. Verse 26, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Now, I don't think he's just unleashing anger on us. Go ahead and be angry. But he is acknowledging that not all anger is sin. Our problem is most of our anger is very sinful. What anger is, is a reaction to unrighteousness. And Jesus himself was angry. He was angry at the the Jewish leaders in Mark 3 when the Pharisees on the Sabbath were staring at him, having brought in a man with a withered hand. And they knew the compassion of Christ. They were waiting for him to heal because they cared more with catching Jesus in their own perceived Sabbath violation than they did about this man who had this withered arm. And we read that Jesus was angry at them. He was angry for a good reason. And he healed the man anyways. But usually our anger is not very good. We have a lot of selfish motives in our anger, a lot of self-righteousness. And so Paul places three limitations on anger. He says, be angry and do not sin. So the first thing we need to be careful of is when we get all riled up, anger tends to take off and flame very quickly and can lead you in all sorts of ways into sin. And so he says, be angry and do not sin. And then he goes on to say, to add to that, do not let the sun go down on your anger. Meaning, don't hold tightly on to it. It needs to be of brief duration. Um, Now, one commentator uh, has suggested that uh, in saying that uh, don't let the sun go down on your anger is not the same thing as saying don't let the sun go down on your conflict because you may not be able to resolve a conflict especially if you got mad at one another uh, late in the day but what you can do is you can remove your anger from that conflict, even if it can't be resolved that evening, it it needs to be controlled. We need to, whatever anger we do experience, he's saying, don't hold on to it for a long period of time. Because the longer you hold on to your anger, 
the more likely it will smolder within you and dig itself deep into your heart as a root of bitterness. And he later is going to speak against bitterness. So we don't want to hold on to anger tightly because ultimately we are not the arbiter of what's right and wrong with respect to any conflict. God is, and so we need to trust it to him. And so we don't need to hold on to our anger, but rather trust him with the outcome. But then he goes on to say, and do not give an opportunity to the devil. That's one thing that the devil is the father of lies. He loves to create division and anger creates division. It can create deep division. And Paul wants the church to be the church. And the church, he says, make every effort to maintain the unity of the spirit and bond of love. And so anger is a very divisive thing. In James 1.20, you might remember, James has just said, be, be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to anger, for anger produced by man does not fulfill the righteousness of God. So, again, what should people see when they look upon the church? Well, they they should see very little anger. And any anger they see should be anger that is aimed at unrighteousness, at at unfairness, uh, where there's obviously wrong. That's what we ought to be angry at, not at one another. And yet we too easily become angry at one another and allow division to come about. What else should people see? How else would they describe this gown with which we've been adorned as a church? Well, we ought to see giving rather than taking, a generosity rather than a selfishness. He says in verse 28, let the thief no longer steal but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he might have something to share with anyone in need. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor. Now, we, you might think, well, I'm not running around robbing banks. I'm not, I don't even shoplift. But there are a variety of ways that we unwittingly can steal. It can be as much as uh, borrowing something from work, a resource, and using it for personal uh, items. It can be stealing one another's time. It can be stealing one another's uh, reputation by uh, small little quips and comments, little jokes, ha-ha that aren't really so funny. Um, He says, rather than try to be taking from other people, trying to accumulate our own power base, as it were, rather, we need to work hard, labor hard at serving others. 
doing honest work with our own hands. And not merely doing honest work ourselves, but rather seeking to share with those in need. You see, if our if our focus is on others and how we can help them in our need rather than on ourselves and what we desire, we're not going to be so tempted to steal, whether it be time or reputation or, or even possessions, but rather instead seeking, how can I give? How can I help this person? And when, when people help one another, when they give freely to one another, that's a beautiful thing. That's a beautiful thing. Giving rather than taking. And then he goes on to speak of edifying speech. Verse 29, he says, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. That when he says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, the word corrupting is a word that is used of fruit when it's rotten or of fish when it's past its expiration and it's old and it's beginning to stink. And he's saying sometimes our talk can have that effect on people. It can make them sick. It can make them gag. It can make them stink. Now over against the devil that he's previously mentioned who loves to create division in the church, he immediately says, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Now that and there indicates that this reference to the Holy Spirit is linked to talk that tears other people down, that is destructive, that corrupts them rather than builds them up. And he said we need to be building one another up in the faith, not tearing one another down. And he says it grieves the Holy Spirit when it happens that we tear one another down. It's the spirit that unites us to Christ. The spirit who has sealed us for the day of redemption. Here he's bringing uh, forward an idea that he mentioned in chapter 1, verse 13 and 14. He says, In Christ you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, we're sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. But when we speak in a way to run other people down, to try to elevate ourselves, instead of seeking to build other people up and to encourage them in the Lord, what we do is we basically tear apart what the Holy Spirit is already sealing and guaranteeing for the day of redemption, that he will Hold on to us. He's saying here that the way that we speak to one another, we can give grace to one another. 
we can be a vessel of God's grace to one another by speaking a word of encouragement, by speaking a word that points them to Christ, that, that speaking a word that directs their thought away from themselves and their problems and, and helps them to see themselves as God sees them rather than as they may be seeing themselves and beating themselves up. So the way that we interact with one another, the way that we speak to one another, we should be a mutually edifying congregation. That's beautiful when people are speaking not for their own benefit, but to build one another up. And that's what he says we should look like. That's what people should see. That's what people should experience as they come into our fellowship together. And then finally in our text, he says, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. He just lists a number of things that move from speech to violent action. They tend to be very violent speaking words that tend to break out the word clamor, just an uproar. Um, with all malice, all evil intent, there ought not to be evil intent among us. For whatever reason, whether we're trying to gain advantage over someone, whether we think we'll look better if we can put someone else down. No, he says, um, be kind to one another. Tender-hearted. Forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. That word kind is an interesting word. It's a word used of... God. He used um, he used that word in Romans chapter two, verse three. Remember the kindness of God towards you, and. He's saying, be kind to one another. The interesting thing is the Greek word for kind or kindness is krestos. The word sounds very much like Christos, which is the word for anointed or the Christ. But he's, he's directing our thoughts back to God, both at the beginning by using that word of kindness, which does reveal how God does treat us in Christ, but also makes us think of Christ by its very sound. And then he says, be tender-hearted. Don't, be, don't harden our hearts towards one another, but rather forgive one another as God in Christ has forgiven us, reminding us of the Lord Jesus and of who we are as a forgiven people. And if we have been forgiven by Christ, how can we not? How can we be hard-hearted? How can we want to make one another suffer? Well, you hurt me, so I'm going to hurt you. It reminds us of that parable Jesus told of of the man who owed uh, a large amount of money 
And he begged the master was going to throw him in jail for forgiveness. And the master said, okay. But then he went out and another servant who owed him just a little bit of money, he threw him into jail for that little amount of money. And, and the master came back and said, you don't understand forgiveness. And he threw him in jail until he would pay every last penny for that large amount that, that had he had asked to be forgiven of. When we don't have kindness towards one another, when we are tender towards one another, it tends to breed resentment. And rather, what overcomes resentment is forgiveness. Now, we can forgive only because we ourselves have been forgiven. The Apostle John says we love because he first loved us. It's because we ourselves have been forgiven that we don't have to, as it were, get every pound that we feel we are owed, but rather we can give up and release people from their debts to us because God has released all of our debts to him. This is a kind of picture of the gown that the Lord wants people to see us wearing as a church. This is what we're, we've put off the one. We've been renewed by God's grace. And now we're to put on the likeness of God. And this is what the likeness of God looks like in operation. It's, it's in our interactions. How we treat one another. How we think of one another. How we speak to one another. How we feel towards one another. If, in fact, we've been changed by God's grace in Jesus, then that needs, that should be seen. If Christ has changed our hearts, it should change our mouths and our thoughts and our actions to one another. It's only possible by God's grace. He makes that clear at the end. As God in Christ forgave you. That's what. That's what gives us hope. That, that's what makes us beautiful when we practice the grace that we've re already received. When we give to one another grace that we ourselves have received. Maybe not from that person, but we know we've received it from God. How can we not share it with others if we truly understand it to be the precious gift that it is? Jesus gave us the Lord's Supper to remind us over and over of his grace. Pictured here is his death. His death because of our sinfulness. And yet he welcomes us to his table. He welcomes us. He wants us to be transformed by what he's done for us. And so he's given us something tangible, but something that also draws us together. There's one table. It's the Lord's table. It's not our own private snack we take off by ourselves. It's something we share together in the midst of our worship because we belong to Jesus. It's a joyful meal. It's fueled by 
God's love for us, by Jesus' love and laying down his life. There's no room for resentment, for sullenness, for anger here at this table. If our focus is on Jesus and what he's done for us, it can't be on the people around us and what they haven't done or what they wrongly did. But those people that may have treated you unkindly, they're sinners to be sure, sinners just like you are. And it says a sinner that Jesus invites you to his table. And so may we, by his grace, as we feast upon Christ, who he really is, may we be seen. May that aura of Christ's likeness that we have put on by his grace may it be seen to be a beautiful designer's garment, one that comes only from God through his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. May other people be drawn to us. May they desire to to come and be a part of us because of the beauty that they see in us and upon us of what God has done for us in Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we are humbled by your mercy to us in Christ. Um, It's all too easy for us to think only of ourselves and not of others, and yet you haven't just saved us personally but you've saved us to be a part of your body, your people. You have one new man in Jesus. We are united to one another in him. There's no keeping separate or at arm's length from one another. We thank you that you did not hold us off at arm's length but rather that you welcomed us as sinners. As sinners who understand that we need Jesus. And so we pray you would stir our hearts and encourage our hearts and that you would make Jesus more clearly seen in us. That we as a church would be clothed with the likeness of God not because we ourselves are perfect, but because you are gracious and loving and kind and true. May we more and more by your grace resemble what you are because you are dwelling in us and with us personally and as a congregation. Do that work. Let your beauty be seen. And may we see it too.
Thank you for your amazing love. We pray in the way that Jesus himself taught us to pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation and deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.